0: Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 4, Session 2, and it is Thursday the 25th of February 2021. And this session is uh, titled Understanding the Vaccine Rollout. It's part two. And this morning we're talking about residential aged care facilities. So, well, um, a milestone was reached this morning, and the first members of our community received their vaccination to protect against the COVID 19 disease. It's been an eventful week, to say the least. We've hit the low point of our first nat- nationally reported vaccine error, um, and the highs being some of the first recipients to receive the vaccine in the state through our newly established PH. Um, You hubs. The EOIs might have come out right now. Many of you will be thinking about your role as vaccinators in the coming months. But this morning, we'd like to keep our conversations focused on the phase 1A rollout, um, the rollout in the residential age facilities. We'll hear from a diverse group of presenters about um, plans for rolling out through a PHU hub, about adverse events and side effects, um, rollout logistics and management and pathways for reporting. We'll work through some case vignettes that will be representative of some of the uh, early conversations that many of you will be having with patients and their families in residential aged care facilities at the moment. In the early stages of a battle that's been described to be fought and won on the grounds of good communication and engagement, we'll seek to refine the message and supports that we offer our community. Some of what we do best in primary care, through these conversations this morning. So what's on the agenda today? So we're going to kick off with Grampian's PHU update. Welcome to Robin Wilson, Operations Director at Grampian's Public Health Unit and Director of the Chief Medical Officer, who'll be giving us an update on what's happening, what's coming up uh, with the rollout that's going to be starting, I believe, next week. Then Rachel Cowan joins us again. Thank you, Rachel, to uh, talk about understanding the adverse events and side effects in the elderly. I guess the kind of knowledge base around some of the conversations that many of you will be having at the moment around consent and and, um, and also thinking about the the days following um, to kind of complete our knowledge knowledge cascade or our knowledge waterfall is Kate Graham, clinical editor of Health Pathways and the COVID clinical advisor to the West PHN, and she's been doing a bit of interrogating of these events adverse events reporting pathways, and they are a little bit confusing because I think that they while there's the national system they do um, vary state to state. So we'll give you get you right square into the um, what's happening for us, what's relevant to us. We like to welcome Alison O'Neill, a GP with special interest in aged care who's really been square puzzling all of this, and um, when Alison comes online um, around about eight o'clock, well, I'll let you introduce yourself, Alison. But it's really nice to see you, and um, I'm really um, pleased to have a, um, a, new, a new case presenter amongst our meets. So thank you so much for agreeing to present a case. Then we'll crack into discussion, and our PHN update will be by Linda Govan. Thank you. I'll hand straight over to Robin. Then welcome, Robin. That's
1: right. Thank you for having me. Um, so if you don't know, I'm Bianca. Like you probably just said this, but I'm the ops, acting ops director for the Greenwich Public Health Unit. Um, after plenty of um, false date start dates, we've actually definitely um, starting on the first of March next week, um, and we are starting with all of our racks in Ballarat, the Ballarat Health Rack. So there's ten of those which we'll be visiting each day. Uh, we're almost certain the vaccine will be ri- arriving on f- uh, Sunday evening, and it will be in a thawed state. So we'll have our we'll have to get finished by Friday. Um, and uh, so what we've done at the moment we sent we in anticipation of this we've asked all of the residents to be consented in advance there are a group of people who don't have um an mtdm and uh so to work around that we've um lisa's going to approach the gps and ask to have a written order for that so i've just sent out what the order would look like um and she'll have that written up like you do with the flu the flu vaccine so we can use that um, but if there is someone that we miss, we can always come back if we haven't had a chance to get the consent done and it's not mandatory, so um, that's how we're approaching that. Uh, we're will go. we going around with a pod, so we'll go around with the team lead. Um, all of our immunisers are trained and the people drawing it up and observing them, so um, once they get a vaccine, they'll get a sticker to say what time they had it so we can observe them for the right period of time. Um, and hopefully that will all go well. The other... Um, Thing that I've found out in the last few days is that GPs who attend RACs are definitely included, uh, including the Phase 1A rollout. So we will be... The way um, we, you, you receive an invitation for an appointment is that we'll need your email address, then we'll send you an email requesting you to book yourself in for an appointment. Um, we'll be in Ballarat um, in this so second week still um, starting on the public holiday, Monday the 8th, which we completely... Uh, March the 8th, we completely forgot that it was a public holiday. Uh, we'll be starting our Phase 1A group. So you'll receive a, an email request to book in. And we're trying to batch those through so that we don't, um, you know, give all of ICU the vaccine on the first day and then they can't come. Some you know, we lose our workforce the second day if they're not well. Um, so you'll receive a written... Um, a, a, an email request to book in when we get there, but and that will the invitation should have a consent with it. The electronic um, system we're using called CBMS may not be able to deliver all the things that's promised at this stage, so it may be that we we um, send you a written consent form or a consent or self screening form in advance. So that's not finalised yet. We actually are only getting access to CBMS today. Um, we've had a bit of training, but we haven't had access to the live system. So uh, that's how we'll be approaching GPs in the who, who work in RACs. Um, Lisa Clinic is providing me those um, email addresses for people in the Ballarat, but we'll be approaching each, um, when we get to the RACs in our region, we'll be approaching you in the same way. I don't know if you work in private RACs, has that happened? Have you received an invitation for a immunization if you attend private?
0: Alison, did you want to take yourself off mute? Because I was just going to ask that same clarifying question. Was that directed to those working in? I've the been wondering practice?
2: about that, about how I'm going to get mine. And no, I haven't received an invitation, and I'm not staff. So I, I'm yes, I would like to know how that will happen. Don't want to fall through the, the gap.
1: Um, I, I actually have no um, no no vision of what's happening in the private space at all. Um, I, I know it's happening out there. That's about it. I know the dates for ON Eclipses provide us with the dates of when they're going to facilities, but other than that, I don't have any, I can't see what, what's happening. Um, so I probably um, I don't know who has access. That's all right,
0: you can throw back to me at that point, Robin. That's all good. It's I I understand that your um that your your remit is under the public racks and yeah. we can direct the questions around the private racks. Right. so we'll see if we can get a response this morning otherwise it'll be a take it on notice and we'll find how that's going to be communicated with Alison and other GPs working in private rack so thanks
1: oh, oh and we're all being trained on the multi-dose bile just in case you're wondering yeah. <laughs>
0: That's good. Thank you. That's very reassuring. I must say I was surprised that that did happen. For those of you who didn't catch it, the, advert, the adverse um, – well, the, the um, vaccine error apparently was due to the person not having been trained. Very surprising that slipped through the net. And um, and I must say, being the, the daughter of a nurse and a doctor, um, my immediate question was, oh, I wonder why the nurse wasn't administering that because <laughs> – So I'm sure there were nurses everywhere going, ooh, I wouldn't have done that. Anyway, very interesting start. And no doubt everyone will um, be on their toes. Um, With that, thank you so much, Robin. If there's nothing else, um, I'll hand over to Rachel. Thank you. All right. Um,
3: so I just sort of go through a few of the considerations prior to vaccination, and then through a couple of things around adverse events and how to manage them. So the question is, should I vaccinate? So there's been a lot of discussion about whether we do vaccinate the frail and the elderly, and I think it's very much around, or the recommendations are very much around, um, basing on the goal of care, goals of care of that patient. Obviously, if they're in the terminal phase of their life and you're providing end of life care, then it probably isn't appropriate. But even if they're frail um, as well, uh, it, it is worth doing it because of the concerns around severe disease um, if they do contract COVID. And it also minimises the amount of disease in the, in the residential aged care facility because at the moment we, there's no data around transmission. And so what, this vac- what these vaccines are actually showing is a reduction in the severity of the disease as well. Um, and, but, and that people will get more likely to get mild-to-moderate disease rather than severe disease. So it doesn't mean you, 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 we don't have the data as to it stops people getting it. The assumption is that it probably will have an effect on that because viral loads will be lower, lesser. But um, we don't have the data around that at the moment. If you're planning to become pregnant, it doesn't affect fertility, so we would recommend that. So this is for just for the general population as well. Um, the vaccine's inactivated um, and is just a, a subunit, so um, there shouldn't be any issues around breastfeeding. If you're immunosuppressed, um, we actually recommend that you do get vaccinated because there is a risk for more severe di- disease and there doesn't appear to any be any um increasing the adverse events uh, following immunization. Uh, And then with pregnancy, we always worry about pregnancy, although it's a subunit vaccine, it's it's weighing up the risk benefit ratio. So what's the background um, incidence in the, or the background prevalence in the population at the moment? Are they a healthcare worker? So they're at greater risk, Um, that kind of stuff. So it's weighing up those risk and benefits. If you can wait, then we would recommend waiting. As far as timing of other vaccines as well, and this is both for influenza and any other vaccination that you're doing, what we're actually suggesting, what is being recommended, not even suggesting, is that you have uh, those vaccines a minimum of 14 days before or 14 days after the vaccine. And it's not necessarily around the ability to mount the immune response. It's more around the clouding of um, side effects around those vaccinations as well. Um, and if you've previously been known to have a COVID infection, then we it's recommended that you get, uh, you do get vaccinated and make the, they think the immunity lasts at least six months. So it's worth waiting six months from infection because you will have some uh, long term immunity there. The exact length of that immunity, we, we actually don't know at the moment. So some medical consider. Um, considerations we mentioned um, anaphylaxis last week it's about one in uh, sort of about five per million doses and most of those um, cases of anaphylaxis with the specifically with the Pfizer vaccine uh, as we know are related with think to the polyethylene glycol so we're thinking that the AstraZeneca is not going to have those problems um, about 90% of those will happen within 30 minutes of vaccination um, interestingly 25 uh, sorry, almost 25% of it had prior anaphylaxis of those that got anaphylaxis and 80% had a history of allergy to a range of substances. So the absolute contraindication is obviously anaphylaxis after a previous dose of the vaccine or to any component of the vaccine. Um, there will be specialist clinics that are currently being set up uh, through Bowen Health and the contact details will follow and I'll pass that through to Bianca and Gemma. Um, in terms of a specialist anaphylaxis clinic if you're worried about your resident to go and get vaccinated and, and to provide advice for it. If anybody's got any anaphylaxis to anything oral, so food, insect skins, you know, anything like that, that's fine. There's no issue with getting the vaccine, but they should be uh, observed for 30 minutes post the dose rather than the recommended 15 minutes. Um, bleeding disorders is an anticoagulant therapy. There's obviously a hematoma risk around the um, vaccination, so smaller needles and pressure uh, to the site five minutes post-vaccine. Um expected side effects, basically they happen about a day or two after the vaccination and then resolve within a day or two. As you can see, that's a table which I'm not going to go to in detail, but it's the standard uh, vaccines. The interesting thing that you get with a vaccine, the interesting thing is that they seem to be worse um, after the second dose uh, and on a lot of the occasions, which is really interesting. And the other interesting thing is that people under 55 seem to get more Uh, adverse events, but it's the usual injection site reactions, fever, fatigue, headache, feeling a bit ordinary, joint pain. Um, Some people, the other thing is, is that we don't recommend that you give a pre-panadol or pre-paracetamol dose uh, prior to the vaccination. Um, So the key thing is about do they need a swab after the vaccination? So is there a temporal association with the vaccine and um, expected symptoms? So if they're getting things like the fever, the headache, the fatigue, that kind of systemic symptoms that we would normally expect from the vaccine um, and they have no respiratory symptoms whatsoever, then we attribute it back to the vaccine. And so you don't need to actually swap those people. Um, If they do have the respiratory symptoms, so like the the coughs, are cold, the colds, the sore throats, the runny nose, we know that those are not side effects of the vaccination. So they're the ones that you would isolate and test. Um, it's hoping that in such a, given that we're sort of back in donut days, that that's not actually going to be an issue for anyone. Um, the other thing is that you could use that stop and watch tool in terms of early, early warning signs, which are really useful. I'm going to leave that in there because people can refer to that, but it's just basically possible, most likely and clearly secondary to to vaccinations and thanks to Austin Hospital for that. Um, And just basically, does the vaccine work? Well, interestingly, United States, United Kingdom and and Israel all started the vaccinations around the same time and we're all seeing a reduce in the transmission of cases, so we've got our fingers and toes crossed. Uh, And I might move on from there because I think my time is up.
0: That's great, Rachel. Thanks for showing that, that slide. I'm really keen to get into that. Maybe that's something we could pick up with on ne- next week, you know, what's happening with transmission, what's happening with deaths. That's really exciting. Thanks so much for that presentation. Um, I'm going to throw over to you, Kate. And, look, any questions for Rachel in the chat? Are you sticking around, Rachel? You're here till 8.30? Yes, Anne. Wonderful. So vaccine questions, um, pop them in the chat um, and uh, we'll move on to Kate. Thanks
4: morning, everyone. Um, So I'll just start off with a quick health pathways update. Um, So we've got the information page, which is live now. Hopefully our procedure and preparation pages will be live tomorrow. And a lot of the information, or actually probably all of the information that I'm gonna have on these next slides um, is gonna be up on those pages. So um, while we'll share these slides, and they're really busy slides, but that was mainly to make sure that you had the information later that you can refer back to. Um, it's all going to be on Health Pathways. So the major updates this week are adding, <clears throat> adding in a link for the Frail Older People Decision-Making Tool. Um, we've got Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander resources. The MBS page is being updated with the confirmed MBS item numbers to commence from March the 1st. Um, and the fact that all people with symptoms post-vaccination who do require COVID testing um, should be marked as a priority one on the PATH request. Um, Other things to flag, the National Eligibility Checker um, and the Health Direct COVID-19 Vaccine Side Effect Checkers are live, Um, and the National and State COVID-19 Hotlines are also able to provide information to patients and healthcare providers in relation to the vaccine. Um, So the information there is just about other ways that people, um, healthcare providers or patients, can get information or general vaccine inquiries. So what to report? Um, There's lots of reporting around COVID vaccines. You're definitely reporting side effects. Um, So you want to report any significant event or illness post-vaccine, even if you think they're unrelated. They're really keen to know about things in the elderly um, and aged care population, so falls, hospitalisation, You need to report any clinical incidents, so vaccine overdoses. um, That's been reported everywhere in the media, as we've seen, but that isn't necessarily the type of reporting we want to look at. Um, Any occupational health and safety incidents, mandatory reporting of anaphylaxis events that occur um, in health services or that um, present to health services, so um, that's something that is a pre-existing thing, not related to the COVID vaccine, but it's something that is mandatory. Um, you also need to report vaccine wastage, loss, damage, and cold chain breaches. So next slide. So when we are looking at side effects, this is really tiny. Sorry, guys. Um, but you want to report all adverse events, um, including significant events, um, using the SafeVic website, which is spelled S-A-E-F-V-I-C, and they're the adverse events following vaccination Um, website but it's actually the website itself is spelt safe vac um, which is really confusing but if you just follow the links on the slides or in health pathways you'll be much better set up Um, or you can also that's a state one and you can also report to the therapeutic goods administration directly federally um, and patients can also self-report so this is where you want to report any of the significant ones. OSVAC safety is something that you probably may not have heard of unless you've had it in your practice. This is where you want to report common and minor expected reactions, and it's really encouraged to enhance um, ongoing surveillance. Um, so it's where patients are going to receive text or email follow-ups at days three, eight, and six weeks post-vaccine. Um, GP clinics who are providing vaccines and other vaccine providers can register for SmartVax software. Um, it's free, runs in the background. You get notified if your patient reports a serious reaction and de-identified data is sent to AusVac Safety and reports to the TGA, and they're going to be putting up weekly reports of vaccine adverse effects so that we can all follow along. So overdoses and clinical incidents. Um, if an accidental overdose occurs, you want to do all the right things, but you need to report immediately to the National Vaccine Operations Centre um, also, if you're in a health service, you have to report to the Victorian Health in- Management System or through your practice incident reporting systems and also to the SAFEVIC website or TGA um, as a clinical um, vaccine incident. Vaccine wastage, um, potential or actual wastage of more than five vials, you have to report to the Vaccine Operations Centre. Um, but importantly, if a cold chain breach has occurred or if there's damage, you need to also contact them. Um, And you also have to complete an online report following as well. So next, Um, and that's the link for the online form for anaphylaxis. And don't forget the Better Safer Care Anaphylaxis resources. And I think, is that the last slide? Yes, thank you. And hopefully all your questions will be answered by the health pathways that will be up very soon and we'll have all the links on there. And as we get more information um, about some of the referral pathways, we'll put them up too. Um, we've also got up there at the moment. Um, we're going to have links to where you can call um, or make a referral through SAFEVIC or Safe Act, um, to the specialist immunisation services. They triage report uh, they triage referrals if you have concerns about patients, and they'll send you in the right direction to the, speciali- the specialist specialist immunisation service clinics. There. All right,
0: thank you. Now, we're still on the line and you've got to get off the line in a couple of minutes, but I was wondering if I could throw a question to you. And I think it relates to, you know, a few people now have mentioned that, oh, I'd really hate to see a dose of Pfizer wasted. And uh, there was a question in the chat that if there is um, excess doses and, you know, how are they going to be used? I guess I'm keen to hear, how do you do something like this as an optional logistics manager? How, do you, how are you thinking you'll manage those excess doses?
1: Um, well, the thing that we don't know, firmly is actually how many we're getting. So it's really hard to know. So what we're doing in advance is to make sure that anyone, uh, that we have some people consented in advance, If we, especially staff that we call in, that if we find that, you know, we've got a spare dose or something that we can give, on site wherever we are and we'll also have so the nurse immunizers will also be in that first group because we know we've got them here and they'll be consented ahead so for us it's about consenting anyone wherever we're going so that if we do find we've got something left over and available we can use straight away but we need to do that prep work before we get to them we can't just find anyone and throw a needle at them but yes.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much. That's lovely. Lovely. With that, um, Alison, I'd like to hand over to you. Um, Do you mind starting by introducing yourself to the group?
2: Um, Sure. So uh, you can tell by my background that I'm not an expert. I'm a a consumer of this information. I'm a a GP. You're a GP Um,
0: expert. That's what we call you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a GP uh, who has uh, worked in all areas of general practice for the last 20 years. I've always had an interest in aged care and palliative care. Uh, About 12, just over 12 months ago, um, I was doing combination of clinic-based general practice work and aged care work. Uh, And there is a shortage of aged care GPs pretty much everywhere. Um, But I was approached when a a local aged care facility that had an employed doctor with lots of residents was retiring and they just couldn't get another doctor to fill that gap. So I made the call in my career to be put on the gypsy hat and be a GP with special interests full-time and work solely in aged care, which I've done since March last year. That's probably useful background because what it meant was last year in March or just before March, I, um, I had suddenly 120 new residents to learn and meet, which was interesting timing from a pandemic point of view. Um, So now I have uh, shared as many other tasks in life as possible, and I have uh, one facility where I have a lot of residents and I still visit one of my facilities I previously worked at as well, um, with a smaller number of residents so it's been a busy year. that's uh probably enough about me shall
0: i just thank you yeah <laughs> we could put the slides up for you so um so i guess while we're putting them up the way this works is allison um I, we approached allison and thank you to allison for agreeing to present as our gp expert and certainly she uh sounded like she'd had her head square in the algorithms um and so we just had a little bit of a chat hopefully it wasn't too hard was it allison we just had a bit of a chat right. i've put together some slides and um and i hope i've represented um allison's presentation well um but yeah. Yeah, I'll hand it over to you now. So we've got a couple of vignettes that we're going to work through and I'll I'll hand it to you. Thanks, Bianca. Bianca did my slides for
2: me. Otherwise, my children wouldn't have been fed this week um, <laughs> with the time I was in. Just before we get on to the, uh, the studies, the discussions, perhaps just to might be useful to talk through the lived experience I've had of the vaccine rollout in the last week. Um, my two facilities are being vaccinated. The first one this morning, right now, is beginning. And the second one is tomorrow morning. So, you know, this presentation would have been great a couple of weeks ago, and uh, but I've had to sort of muddle through the information coming at me in the last week. Um, and uh, and make sense of it and go through the process of assisting the facilities with the consents and organisation. So hopefully I've done as much as I can and it's go time. Um, uh, but obviously I, th- I think the um, the more information that can come your way if you're f- working in a facility and this is coming in the next few weeks, I would urge you to get onto it as quickly as possible because the time frame is going to be quite short between being notified that uh, the immunisation providers are coming. Um, and having to have everything ready. So obviously we want this to be successful so that the residents are protected. Um, uh, So last, uh, I have been uh, talking about immunization and keeping an eye on the vaccines obviously very closely. uh, And with residents and families, I've been been starting to introduce these conversations for a little while. I did um, go to one of the webinars or, or, information sessions a few weeks ago online and it suggested then that the immunisation providers would be doing the consents um so I probably backed off and uh, more than I should have then then last Tuesday I was notified by um the clinical manager at one of my facilities that they were uh, they were coming on Monday, last Monday to do the vaccines. Um, That was delayed till Friday, luckily. Um, And uh, they they let me know at that stage that the facilities would need to be getting the consents in in advance, which is what I thought. So went to a bit of a spin. Um, The next morning I was on another webinar. Linda from the PHN helpfully sent me through some of the information that was coming because more information came that day from the Department of Health. Uh, The information's all out there. So I think the, the The um, advantage you all have now is that through these sessions we know now where to find it all. Those links that Kate's been sending around have been really helpful and I think a lot of stuff that's come from the RACGP as well is helpful. Um, But uh, there is a lot of links that get sent to you you, and a lot of information that comes. So um, if we can save time by maybe working out where the really important stuff is, that's good. Um, So I I, uh, had the last week I, I went to one of the residence meetings and spoke to to the residents on the whole. And I spent a lot of time reading the information about the logistics um, in particular. And then we have, uh, and the facilities um, have done a great job of, of obtaining as many consents as possible. Um, but the GPs, while in the, in the clinical government's information there, there's a huge responsibility on the residential aged care facilities to be doing this work. But, uh, and the actual GP roles seem to be quite peripheral. And it will depend on your facility. In one of my facilities, I've been really actively involved and kept updated all the time exactly what's happening and lots of questions and so forth. Um, in other situations, yeah, it's almost, you're notified it's happening, but you don't really know what's going on. Um, but certainly there is going to be uh, a big role for GPs that are working in aged care to, um, to, to help the residents and families with this process and the facilities. Um, so the, the parts that um, I thought we would focus on this morning, which Bianca was suggesting, was the, uh, so in the, um, the product information in TGA and in the guidelines, it talks a little bit about um, the, the case-by-case analysis for frail and elderly patients. So, you know, there is uh, the line that's in some of the information is that the potential benefits of vaccination versus the potential risk uh, and clinical impact of even relatively mild systemic adverse events in the frail elderly should be carefully assessed on a case by case basis. In the clinical government's requirements document, it says that um, the, the facility should be assessing the patients for suitability and where there are concerns should contact the GP um, for uh, you know to clarify that and to decide whether a patient is suitable. The information to relatives includes um, information about that and says that they should be contacting their GP about concerns as well. So there's certainly, yeah, I would definitely expect questions to come in the direction of GPs from uh, the, the nurses, the staff, the residents uh, and the families. Um, and there may be situations where um, we will need to approach those people as well about whether a patient is suitable for vaccination. Um, You know, I think that the process of informed consent is important in that sense, um, uh, I suppose to make sure as many residents uh, do benefit, do get the benefit of the vaccine, but also to make sure that expectations are correct in terms of um, residents and families being, uh, understanding why they're doing what they're doing. So that's the cook's tour of where we've got to. There was lots of, I had lots of questions in the last week. Most of them were, is mum taking anticoagulation Um, and those sorts of things. Uh, But there were quite a lot of questions and and situations that came up like this. Um, Let's call this man Bob or whatever we called him, Uh, but we'll we'll crack on with the the information. So some of the frail and elderly um, weighing up the case by cases has been really easy. Uh, You know, there was some that I immediately identified as um, not being appropriate or suitable for vaccination. Um, One of those died last night, Uh, others are clearly on on a palliative pathway and not appropriate. There were some of those situations where I felt um, they really were quite frail and may not tolerate even very mild side effects and that could be the thing that tips them. Um, And so I had conversations with families and they agreed, also easy. I actually found that, um, yeah, the good part I have found about this whole process is that the, there, is very, there was very little of the a very, very lot of enthusiasm for the vaccine, very little reluctance from people to be vaccinated overall. These are the elderly. They grew up in diphtheria wards and with polio and they love vaccines, um, and they are very keen to be vaccinated. So the more common scenario I found rather than people not wanting the vaccine was people who are very frail and very elderly but do want to be vaccinated. and you know they will be. But navigating the informed consent for that um, has been an interesting exercise.
0: So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. So I'm going to now hand over to Linda to bring us the PHN update. Uh, thank you, Bianca. Um, just so
5: briefly, in regards to the private RACFs, Aspen have been engaged um, by the Commonwealth to administer vaccines to the privates only. Um, and whilst Aspen bed down their processes, the PHN have been liaising between Aspen and, and um, the private, the week one RACS regarding dates and times. However, we expect as Aspen get their um, processes in line, they'll um, liaise directly with the RACFs. Um, In this first week, they're only immunising or vaccinating residents, Um, but we do know that following on from that, they will do staff as well. Um, And I guess the advice that we would give you at the moment is contact the RACF that you work frequently with and find out when the dates are. They will, and you will be able to, be there and and receive a vaccination, but they have been cancelling some this week, so there is um, a problem around that at the moment. But again, they are working on the, their um, processes. I can um, also let you know that um, Barwon Public Health Unit um, have an email address, which I'll pop in pop in the chat. So any GPs down there who are regularly visiting our ACS are able to um, be receive the vaccine by the and, public health unit. and as from the PHN's perspective, we're still working on a process with Aspen and um, the Grampins PHU as well around that. So more information to come. Um, and just briefly about the GP um, expression of interest, uh, COVID vaccine rollout, um, all eligible and in- ineligible practices will have received a letter via email yesterday from the PHN or via the Commonwealth um, for those who are eligible and the majority of practices were eligible from all of the applications that we received. It's, it's just an introductory letter with some guidance documentation. There will be further information provided within the week via the Commonwealth with a commencement date and more operational administrative information coming. So really the information yesterday is, is that you're in or you're not in. And if you're not in and there wasn't very many, we'll be contacting those practices as well. But give us a call if you've got any questions. And I think that is it. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you all. Um, well, with that, I'd just like to thank um, thank all our presenters and um, panellists today and thanks again to Alison. Um, thank you all for all of your engagement um, with this. Please um, have a look in the chat. We'll just shoot again the ECHO evaluation. So um, jump on the ECHO evaluation, tell us what we're doing right and wrong and how we can make it better for you. Um, and uh, there's also in the chat our ECHO email. So Project ECHO, COVID-19, Westwick PHN. In fact, you can always just reply to. Um, the the emails we send out and we'll pop all of the PowerPoints links um, into your post session um, send out and Zach Hollow um, is on board for um, summarising those notes. So let us know what's useful and what we should keep doing. Tell us what we should stop and um, we'll see you back here this time next week. Have a good week everyone and good luck out there. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project ECHO COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.